This is a special episode. Self-help is an honest to work with feelings and emotions to start producing a series of podcasts that will feature our conversation with invited experts. Healing in Motion is a post-discharge solutions provider founded by Mary Nicholson in 2007. Healing in Motion offers a variety of quality programs to help stroke survivors and caregivers. I am here with Dr. Cynthia Wilson and a panel of stroke survivors. According to Dr. Wilson, art therapists are master's level trained individuals who use the combination of the creative arts and mental health counseling to promote the positive mental health of people of all ages. Our therapy has been proven to reduce stress and increase confidence. Dr. Wilson believes art is a universal language that can be very healing for even those individuals experiencing the greatest depths of hopelessness. She has over 15 years of experience providing art therapy, play therapy, and phototherapy techniques to children, adolescents, adults, older adults, and families. Cynthia, welcome. Thank you for being with us. As uh, Daniel said earlier, we truly appreciate this, and um, we hope that this helps people understand what you do and how it can help them. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. What advice would you give to a recreational music group for stroke and brain injury survivors? Uh, So that would be, so not being a music therapist, again, it makes it a little bit difficult, but going into the art therapy and what I've learned from that is that bilateral stimulation, so stimulating left and right hemispheres of the body, helps to activate both hemispheres of the brain and there are ways to get them to then cross-communicate, which when you've had a stroke or a traumatic brain injury, there are areas of the brain that are not communicating. With a stroke specifically, it may show in your body, but if nothing's wrong with your body, it's your brain not communicating that information to your body. So bilateral stimulation with a music group could be drumming, if you're able to use two hands to drum. It could be tapping your feet. It can be raising your shoulders left to right, doing anything that's bilateral. So it could even be just listening to the music go from here to here. So if you have somebody in the group who can make a musical noise or if there's a radio or something with speakers, have speakers on one side and the other side, and it plays here, then it plays here, and it goes left to right. So then your ears are hearing it left to right. Even if your body isn't physically capable of doing something left to right, your ears are capable of hearing left to right. Your eyes are capable of seeing left to right. So you can also have something where there's music playing and lights flashing that go left to right. So it forces your eyes to see left and right, and they move back and forth left to right, which gets the hemispheres working and communicating. Simple too, like just swaying the body, if you're able to kind of sway the body left to right, or nod the head left to right. So very, it can be really, really simple, but bilateral stimulation, I would say, and you can incorporate music into encouraging that bilateral stimulation. What forms of art are suitable for art therapy? Different forms of art have different learning curves. How will all this impact the outcomes of therapy? And many survivors have only one functional hand. Will this limit the forms of art suitable for art therapy? 
So earlier, Eugene asked something about art and art materials. We kind of went over that a little bit, but as far as the learning curve, we didn't talk about that. So there are different learning curves with different forms of art, and as the therapy aspect, I would only put in certain art materials that had a learning curve that that particular client needed. So if the client needs a high learning curve, if they're really if their personality and where they're at in life needs them to be really pulled or pushed into like really diving for learning something new, then I might go that route. Otherwise, I might go with something where it's like a, a novel experience, it's something that they haven't done before, but yet it's something that's sort of easy to to just kind of dive into and get sort of play with it, I guess, and try to take some of the pressure of you have to do it a certain way out of the elements of doing the art, and it's more of we're going to play with the clay. You've never done clay before. We're not trying to build a sculpture that's going to go in the middle of Central Park. We're just going to play with the clay and see what it feels like. And then so we might go with a sensory type of response to the art. It's not about creating an item, but sensorily experiencing it, which then activates the brain. And then in the end, if it turns into something, then it turns into something. But it's, you know, taking a lot of that pressure off, I would say, would be a big part of getting around that learning curve and still allowing people to experience different types of art. And then for the other part of the question that had to do with only one functional hand, I think is what she said. I, I would guess anybody who's had a stroke has probably been to an occupational therapist or maybe even a physical therapist. And they have lots of adaptive equipment that they may have introduced you to. So when it comes to doing art, you can do the same thing. You can adapt the art any way that's needed for the individual. Um, if the person wants to hold a paintbrush in their mouth and not use either one of their hands, then they can do that. Um, if they want to use their foot, they can do that. It's, there's also adaptive equipment for helping to hold on to things, which, you know, occupational therapists have that sort of stuff with being able to hold on to writing utensils and stuff. So, yeah, I would say what I've done is just adapt. It's a lot of just open-minded thinking and going outside the box of the constraints of what traditional art creation is. And it's, that's, that's not what it's about. It's about adapting to whatever the client needs. So um, the next question I have, I think we may have kind of answered that. Um, what kind of art as therapy do you recommend most often and why? And I'm thinking that each individual is going to be different no matter what. But is there one that maybe you do recommend more often than others? That would go back to the bilateral stimulation. Anything that's going to stimulate you bilaterally. So it can be any medium that you feel confident or comfortable with and then try to use it bilaterally in some way. So my next one is the coloring book phase. That's a phase, or is it helpful for someone with a brain injury? And on top of that, how would someone like you evaluate someone to see where they are? Where they are? Is there more of a background to that, I guess? And, and the American Art Therapy Association ended up making a statement about this. But it became a fad for a reason. It's not just a fad. It's not art therapy. It is a therapeutic form of art because it's, it's coloring. It's not, you're not with a therapist or an art therapist who's then using it to have the art communicate to you and art, like figuring out why do you suppose this color is so important to you or what do you think this color is saying to that color or those kinds of things can sometimes come up in an art therapy session when you're working with the art. 
So when you're coloring, you don't have that in and of itself. But it is therapeutic because it's bilateral stimulation. When you're coloring, you go like this, and your eyes go back and forth. So people who color in little circles, it's a little bit less bilateral stimulation, but that then can also be soothing to the body. But if you're coloring back and forth, then you're getting that bilateral stimulation, which then activates your brain, soothes your body, helps you feel grounded. So that's why it became a fad, because it does calm you. So our next question is kind of long, but it's the gold standard for items used in therapy is the double-blind study. Most, I think this is supposed to be OT and PT studies, are not done in this modality. How does the therapy get its approval for use? I think that our therapy is one form of treatment that the double-blind study is rare. So what study method is used to evaluate the, the efficacy of the treatment? Please explain. Okay, so for OT and PT, I can't fully speak to their approval for how they do that. But with art therapy, in my experience and what I've read and what I've done and what my colleagues have done, is that, yeah, double-blind study is definitely less common. What tends to happen, or at least what I did in my dissertation research, was I took two groups. So I knew what I was researching for, so that's why it wasn't a double-blind. And so when you don't do the double-blind, you have to take into account how, how is my knowledge of what I'm what I'm questioning going to affect how they respond. But then there's also, even if I didn't know what I was questioning and I was just there presenting the paperwork because I have no clue, I'm not really the researcher, I'm just an assistant saying here, there's forms to fill out. The participants, there's still the aspect of them wanting to please the researcher or please whoever it is that's presenting the information saying, them trying to sort out what are they looking for? What is the actual question? Hmm, let me try and see if I can answer this in a way that helps them get it right. Um, so those kinds of things you have to take into account, double-blind or not. Uh, but with my dissertation research, what I did was I had two groups. And I had, you can have two groups and you can have one have the intervention and one not have the intervention and see how blood pressure changes or doesn't change or something like that. Or I had two groups, but I had them both do the intervention exactly the same. And then I tested whether or not it did it affect both groups equally. And my groups were differentiated in that one group was a, a group of individuals who had a dissociation. So there was brain stuff going on. They were dissociating from a variety of different things in different ways, all the way up to dissociative identity disorder, which is also called multiple personality disorder. Um, so different parts of their brain were activating and not activating at different times. And when that happens, the communication centers of the brain, the Broca's area of the brain can shut down. When we have trauma, it can shut down. People who have stroke, that sometimes that verbal communication center of the brain is also shut down. There's nothing wrong with your mouth, but your brain is not telling your mouth how to say what it needs to say to communicate. So anyway, in the study, I had individuals who had dissociation currently in that moment, and I had people who did not have dissociation or any diagnosis. And then I wanted to see how the intervention affected both groups. So can it be more universal? Can I then now go and do a study with individuals who've had a stroke or individuals who have traumatic brain injury 
and see does it affect them the same? Does it increase their ability to communicate? That was the intervention was an art piece, an art specific intervention, and then it was to have them write down stuff and see if their writing ability to communicate to health professionals what's going on inside of them increased or decreased or stayed the same. It was just does the art intervention affect your communication ability? So with art therapy, the two group study seems to be pretty common. Um, it's either done where both groups are doing the same thing like I did, and it's just two different populations of people, or it's they there's two groups, it's the same population, but one has some sort of an intervention. And that would be how you find out the internal and external validity of, of them without it being double-blind. But you do have to make sure you take into account researcher bias and all that sort of stuff. So I'm going to open it up to the people on our panel and let them ask uh, other questions that may have come up while we were asking the original questions. So who'd like to start? Can I ask the uh, professor? Yes. Uh, hi. The most studies are not binary. It's not yes or no. So how do you eliminate the subjectivity of the uh, results? Um, so if you have multiple reviewers, that helps. Yeah, like I'm going to have a bias on the results. Right. And there's there's nothing I can do about it. I'm As much as I try to not want a specific answer, I know that there's still, like, I really want this to work. But then also realizing that it's a question of does it work or doesn't it work, and I need to be open-minded to it's not about proving that this works because whether it doesn't work or it does, I'm still getting an answer. I'm still learning something. And if I say, if I find out, okay, this research, the, question, the answer to the question is no, it doesn't work. Okay, well, then why didn't it work? And how can we then do more research to see what can work? Or can't work. You know, it, you get a good answer either way, and that's one thing that some researchers get stuck on. They're, they see it not so much as that they're just asking this wonderment kind of question. They see it more of, I'm trying to prove myself right. And if you can step back from that, it definitely helps with that bias. But even more so, it helps to have multiple reviewers of the information. And then you get a, an average view, and the other viewers don't have any weight in the game, you know, or skin in the game, whatever that saying is, that it doesn't matter if it if it answers yes or no. And so they're just going to look at it blatantly and say, I don't see that this is accurate, or, well, it seems like sometimes, but not all the time, you know, and then you get statistics involved, and that gets complicated. My brain is not a math brain, so. Thank you. You're welcome. So you're seeking to share your energy level and their energy level with you. Mm -hmm. and the two of them increase the amount of level that they feel. Exactly, yeah. When two people are in a room together, I mean, even right now, we're not all in the same room, and I can't technically feel your energy level because we're not in the same space, but the way you're presenting yourself and the questions you're asking and, like, you're joking and stuff manner in the beginning, it gives me a sense of where you are and what place you're in energy-wise, and so that can um, alter the interaction and then I feed off of that you feed off of me and it just becomes this kind of like balance or game between the two and finding that mutual space I don't ever want to pull the client into my spot and say this is where you should be or this is where you need to be 
it's much more of a this is where you are, this is where I am, and everything is okay. There's there's no wrong. You can feel whatever you want to feel, and and it is what it is. And so then we just kind of move from there, acknowledging that sense of apathy or depression or anxiety or anger or anything, and that there's nothing wrong with any of it. Right. That's one of the reasons I try to use the humor. Mm. Um, it, it helps to get people to be more like they want to join rather than be apart from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a way of kind of saying, hey, here I am, I'm open, would you like to come and join? Yeah. It's a welcoming. How do you encourage someone to engage in art therapy who has depression and then as a result, low self-esteem. Um, so there's different, I'll try to answer it as close to the way I answered it the first time. Um, there's different levels of depression and what's called apathy, where it's beyond I'm feeling sad, it's I feel nothing. There's no emotional connection, completely cut off. And in working with somebody with that level, and I think... I said something that it's more common to have apathy when you've had a stroke versus just a general population person walking around having apathy just because they have apathy. General population would be more like some form of depression, major depression or minor depression, uh, situational depression because there's grief and loss going on, that sort of thing. But apathy is, is more common in individuals with stroke. So working with apathy would be first being there where the client is, uh, which I, I don't know if I stated this before the recording or not, but an aspect of therapy is really important to have that regulation, that co-regulation connection with the client, not having them feel bad about where they are or telling them they should or shouldn't be emotionally feeling something or doing something. It's more of going into that space with them and then you making that safe space. So with someone who has apathy, just being present in the space with them in their apathy, whereas I'm not apathetic, I am not in that space. I'm not going to be overly excited and energized because that regulation state is so, like, opposite sides of where they're at. I will present myself calm, grounded, present, aware, connected with the individualist. And then I might just do art in front of them. I would probably do, and I didn't say this earlier, but I would probably do something like watercolors or painting, something that's a very fluid type of art. It's a very ground, like, calm smooth type of movement, watercolor, it allows the brain to have more of that fluid connection. It's uh, not so rigid. There's not so much control to it, so it can be frustrating for some individuals. But just have them watch me do the painting. And so they're in the room. They're sensing my regulation state. They're watching me do the painting. I'm doing the painting visually now showing what my internal regulation is because I can't paint different from what I'm internally feeling. I can't paint something really anxious if I'm feeling really calm. And so then they see that, and over time you get a co-regulation. And once they get that co-regulation and that connection, then they can start doing self-regulation and altering their apathy to different levels of depression and moving along the scale, eventually being able to kind of come out of it, connecting to emotions of any kind, even if it's depression, which will be the first emotion they connect to, is better and apathy. So it means that they're transitioning out. So then we work in the art on the depression and we move from there and we work through that and continue to work on the art. 
And it may be for several sessions where I am painting and they're watching and nobody's saying anything. And then they might say, which I think I mentioned this earlier, they might say, you keep using the color blue and I really hate the color blue. Oh, you hate something. Oh, that's, that's better than apathy, right? And you're verbally communicating something to me about a preference. So if you have a preference, then I, I might even say, well, what do you, do you have a favorite color? They may or may not at that time have a connection to a favorite color. If they do, I'll start adding that into the art. So now they're altering what I'm painting. I'm now not just painting an external vision of my, I'm painting that co-regulation. Some of me and some of them is getting painted. And then now they're visually seeing themselves expressed on the paper. And then it evolves into, are they going to start doing some of the painting themselves? But it can take a long time, and being really patient with it is a big part of it. You know, not trying to rush anybody to be anything that they're not. I had a traumatic brain injury roughly 14 years ago. The brain is such an amazing instrument. Mm-hmm. It works around the disconnects. Mm-hmm. It, for me, it used different nerves patterns to talk to my hands or to talk to my body than it used to have. Mm-hmm. The problem I had later on was how do you how do you get that to kick back to what the original factory settings were, you know? Because I still have some symptoms, I guess, or, or, or some of the presentation of the symptoms as I did earlier. And this has been 14 years. But I was wondering, a stroke versus a TBI is, can be so different in how it presents itself, how do you actually qualify the the different groups in order to do a study? In order to do it, you would have to have that medically diagnosed as to that this person had a stroke and then this group of people had strokes and this group of people had traumatic brain injuries and then separate it out that way. Well, I'm, I'm just trying to figure out because as we recover or as we have time between the incident and today, depending on how far, how long that is, mm-hmm. I think the symptoms are, they deviate, they change, and their perception of them changes. Mm-hmm. So how could you actually have, when we say like a blind study, I'm assuming that we have a controlled subject. We have a controlled subject matter that we can compare. And and I don't think that, like you, I agree with you. I think that that the patient has to set the level and the intensity. Mm -hmm. It has to come from the individual because that's who needs to share. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I agree with you. I don't know necessarily how you could put that in a scientific enough setting to get, quote, mass approval. Yeah. So, first of all, you would have to have the different groups diagnosed medically. A doctor saying, okay, I've gone in there, I've looked at the brain. These 100 people all have had stroke of some kind. But then there's different types of strokes. So you might want to then narrow it down to what kind of stroke was had. And then these 100 people have had uh, brain injury. Well, was it traumatic brain injury? And if it was, what region of the brain did it traumatically affect? Because then that's also going to have a different effect on 
what they're going to say and how they're going to respond in the study. So you have to medically have it really broken down. And then once you get your population set, once you break it down to more specifics, you're going to get your results to be a lot more accurate the more specific you are when you first start out. And when you're doing research, it's different than when you're doing therapy. You have to treat every single person the same. So the environment needs to be set up the same. Every person walks in, you say hi to them all the same way. Even if their, you know, regulation is in a different space, you just have to keep yourself kind of monotone almost so that no one person feels more special than the other person or anything like that. And you hand them all the paperwork the same way. You say, okay, now we're going to look at this, and we're going to take 10 minutes to do this. And it's whether they're finished or not, you need to move on. You know, I mean, it depends on how your research is set up. To start off with, you have to be really specific about your population. And then the research can be more effective, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. I mean, for a scientific study and to get the approval of uh, a third party, I guess I could certainly understand it. What I'm more interested in, because what we do is this, how can how can we help someone who comes to us looking for uh, a way to help themselves? How can we uh, be more effective at maybe advising them to do art therapy or to go see somebody who does art therapy? So how would you be able to assess whether or not art therapy would be good for somebody who comes to you and says, hey, I need help. At least give us some clues that maybe we could recognize when somebody's talking to us that, hey, this might be a good candidate for. Okay. So biased opinion, art therapy is great for everybody. <laughs> um, but to be more specific, you could – so they have difficulty verbally communicating. Art therapy is going to be an automatic – okay, try this out, because you don't have to use your verbal skills in order to do this therapy. Okay. Um, the art is created from your subconscious, and it can help you then see, why am I just randomly crying for no reason? Is it a medical issue, or is it there's some underlying trauma that keeps kind of trying to come forward, and I'm not sure what it is or what I'm looking for, and the art can help you see that and communicate that. But then again, that can also be a medical thing. Sometimes behavioral things is because there's some sort of issue in the brain. It doesn't matter how long ago you've had the stroke or how recent the stroke is, and same with traumatic brain injury or any kind of brain injury just happened, or if it was 27 years ago, art therapy can be some a way to activate the brain that gets the left and right hemispheres communicating, but also the novelty aspect of the art. So say you might say, I've never done art before. I don't know anything about it. So I don't think art therapy is good for me. It might be really good for you specifically because you haven't done any of the art. So anything that gets brought up in the session is going to be this novel experience and novel experiences increase brain growth. You do the art and it's going to increase this part to grow more stuff to kind of allow it not to be so overwhelmed with doing stuff. It's now grown. It's, it's bigger than it was before. So it's almost like it is two different pieces again, like the two different hemispheres. There have been studies where somebody has had an entire hemisphere of their brain removed. You didn't grow a whole other brain hemisphere, but this side just got so big that it had room to do both. Right. Well, thank you, because one of the things that, I mean, we, we don't give medical advice of, over this, but we do hopefully 
can help help one another with giving them ideas of ways that they may be able to help themselves. Mm-hmm. And from what you're explaining, this looks like a wonderful method to help people. It really does. Thank you. And thank you for your time. And there are, and you're welcome, and thank you. There are different tools and stuff, too, or techniques that I will teach my clients that they can take home and do on their own. Help with the bilateral stimulation, that help with self-regulation of emotions, that help with brain growth, all those different things. And I tend to do a lot of psychoeducation with my clients, like educating them why I'm doing what I'm doing and how I research or my personal experience has shown that this is going to help them. So then that allows them to take that knowledge and say, okay, I'm going to keep trying this because she's saying it's, it's going to do this to my brain or this is going to do this to my emotion regulation. There is one question that I do have for you, Dr. Wilson, and that is how do we find someone who can evaluate a person for this art therapy? I mean, I know that there are groups, there's one that's healing through the arts that's is in some areas, but um, they don't do as much as you. So are you, like, referral-based? Can we look you up in the phone book? How do people find a doctor who is an art therapist? So there is an organization called the American Art Therapy Association, and you can find them online. They do have a section where you can type in It's like a therapy search finder, something along those lines. I don't remember exactly what they call it. And you can type in the area you're in, the state, the town, and then it'll let you know what art therapists are in that area that are registered as members of ADA. It doesn't necessarily mean that those are the only art therapists because some aren't registered with ADA. Um, In my area, then there's also uh, small branches. So, like, in my area, I'm currently the acting president of the Northern California Art Therapy Association. California is so large with how long it is. There's the Southern California and the Northern California Art Therapy Associations, and we're branches off of the American Art Therapy Association. So, you can find your local art therapy organization as well and see who's a member of that and see if there are art therapists in your area. There aren't very many art therapists who are Ph.D. level There are creative art therapists, as well as registered and board-certified art therapists. Um, They do similar types of work. There is the only, in in the United States, well, actually it's in the world at the moment, PhD-level art therapy school is Notre Dame de Namira University, which is in Northern California, in order to get a PhD in art therapy. But there are other PhDs that you can get in, like, creative arts therapy that are in New York and different areas. So most of the time, if you're looking for an art therapist, try to find someone who's a registered art therapist. So their initials after the name would be ATR. And even better, if it then says DASH BC, which means board certified. So it means they, they went to school, got their master's in art therapy, they registered themselves, they paid the money to register as an art therapist, and took some, um, did some training in between, then registered. And board certified means that they actually took an exam and they have a, a certification. In California, they don't offer a license for art therapists at the moment, but there are several states that do offer a license, like Oregon is one of them that offer, offers a license. 
So I would say go to the American Art Therapy Association website, see what you can find there. Maybe you can find your local art therapy chapter, contact the, the president of that chapter, see if they can help you find someone in your area. So is there anything that maybe that we didn't cover, questions and stuff that you might want to, I guess, give an ending note on before we close out today? Uh, okay. So I would say a closing note would be be gentle with yourself, be curious, and wonder, have wonderment in life and in the arts and in art materials. Try to let go of judgments of yourself or others, especially when doing the artwork. Yeah, so have that curious wonderment. And that will definitely get you very far in your healing process. That opens up a lot of space in your brain. It gets rid, of, gets rid of a lot of those chemicals that reduce the ability to have brain functioning, all that stress and all those neurotoxins and things. That, it gets rid of those. And taking time to do the art can give you that space. Like the teacher in Hector's group, she was talking about how it's two hours of just being able to sit there and do art. You're just sitting there and being creative. Nobody's judging you. Nobody's saying you can or can't do something. You're just being present in that moment. Try to give yourself that space. Give yourself permission. We all deserve that. Great. Thank you so much, Dr. Wilson. Thank you to our panel here. It's, this has been a wonderful educational experience uh, on art therapy. So thank you all. My website is uniqueimaging.org. So it's U-N-I-Q-U-E-I-M-A-G-I-N-G. So it's unique imaging, but it's also like unique imaging. And then my uh, email address is unique.imaging at yahoo.com. So you're welcome to go to my website. You can see what kinds of classes and stuff I'm offering or what I have a referral page of certain books or videos and things like that. So you can go there and watch and learn about art therapy and links to go to to find an art therapist. Or you can email me and ask me any questions you want. Cynthia Wilson has over 15 years' experience providing art therapy, play therapy, and phototherapy techniques to children, adolescents, adults, older adults, and families. Her business, which is Unique Imaging Art Therapy, enables individuals to express themselves in a way that expands their vision of their place in the world, ultimately boosting their self-esteem and detaching from negative self-images and discovering their true core self once again. She holds a Ph.D. in Art Therapy, Masters of Arts, which is an M.A., Degrees in Marriage and Family Therapy, and a Certificate in Art Therapy, Psychology, and she's a registered art therapist and board certified. Her specialties do include children, adults, and geriatrics in group, family, and individual settings. To address questions our audience has, the discussions will take place once a month. If you would like to join these meetings and meet the presenters directly, please sign up at Feelings in Motion STARS online portal. A-T-T-P-S colon backslash backslash discovery dot stroke focus dot net backslash H-I-M.
STAR stands for Stroke Thrivers and Recovery Strivers. It is a survivor engagement program launched by Feelings in Motion. The team will make sure every survivor or caregiver who has signed up will receive a meeting notification before it takes place. In addition, subscribers to STARS Online will get videos, blogs, updates from a network of innovative support groups. You can even find ways to get yourself or your support team involved so that we can build the program with Feelings in Motion and other like-minded teams together to improve growth care.